Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's said there are two types of people. There are those who complain that rose bushes have thorns and those who rejoice that thorn bushes have roses. Uh, I've probably heard that before, but what type of person are you? What is your uh, kind of default position? Grumbling or gratitude? Which cue, if you like, do you stand in or tend to stand in? As, as we come to this next section in Exodus, and for anyone who is visiting, as Richard has said, we've been kind of, as a church, rereading this, this dramatic second book of the Old Testament together on Sunday nights. But from the end of chapter 15, right through to the kind of beginning of chapter 17, there's a recurring theme. There, there's a prevalent attitude that appears, and, and it's one of complaint. It's one of complaint. Because within the space of three chapters, and they're not three full chapters actually, but within the space of three chapters, there are three separate and successive stories that feature people moaning. And so I want us to think about this issue tonight generally, but consider why it matters very specifically to the people of God, because it seems according to scripture that one of the more serious repercussions and consequences of moaning and complaining and being a person who does, one of the serious consequences of that is a hardened heart, a hardened heart. And from a Christian perspective and for a life with God and a life of God, that's disastrous. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart and nothing will damage your core. Nothing will damage the essential you the kind of epicenter of your will and your wishes and your desires, more than a hardened or a hardening heart. As I was doing some preparation for this, I came across a few recent articles from the spheres of education and business and, and social media, three kind of big areas of life. And they were articles that were all commenting on this culture and growing culture of complaint. And they were reflecting on how this growing culture of complaint is, is characterizing their particular worlds, the world of education, the world of business, the world of social media. And I want to quickly read you a few extracts from those articles to give you a flavor of their reflection. So first of all, from the world of education, this is what was written. Wherever we look in our schools and colleges, we find complaining. In classrooms, in hallways, in offices, in teachers' rooms. Participating in such talk is easy because there is a lot wrong with our schools. There's a lot wrong with our colleges. But this kind of dialogue is destructive and it spreads quickly. Why do people complain so much in the first place? An honest answer is that it feels good. It feels good to complain and to blame someone or something else when things are not going our way. Complaining takes the responsibility off us and according to researchers, it often engenders the comforting response we crave whenever we feel disappointed. Or from the world of business, while a certain amount of venting is expected, this can become a problem if your colleagues are constantly complaining. An atmosphere centered around complaining will result in lower productivity and higher levels of stress. And this is a problem for many workers. One survey found that 70% of workers are around someone who complains excessively. And 67% of those people say it puts a dampener on their productivity. And then from the world of social media, negativity is everywhere in our world, especially online. 
cyberbullying, mean political ads, and trolls are just the tip of the iceberg, while many would argue that people complaining isn't as extreme as those examples, it has the same effect. Negativity always leads to unhappiness. And the scary part is, these qualities are affecting us in our everyday lives. So, people complain. People complain. That's not a new revelation. Some people, or most people complain some of the time, some people complain most of the time. But unless we address it, the destructive dialogue will just keep, as one of those articles says, it will just keep spreading. And from a Christian position or a kind of discipleship dimension, the implications of not addressing this attitude, this tendency, are disturbing. Because as I've said, the state of your heart is at stake if you don't address this. Now, before we, we turn to, to God's word, I am aware that there are times whenever it's, it's right to complain. It's actually a healthy thing to complain, to voice dissatisfaction. There is a time for it. There is a time to speak out against injustice, complain. There is a time to express legitimate concern. There is a time to offer constructive criticism. There is a time to highlight issues that need to be addressed. Of course there is, but that's not what we're dealing with here in Exodus. That's not what I'm wanting to consider. The problem I believe we've got to face up to is whenever complaining becomes the norm. It's whenever sounding off, whenever griping is the default position. It's whenever we kind of naturally shift into this mode, whenever we naturally adopt that attitude, whenever actually complaining becomes a habit or, or an art form. And in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, that's what appears to be happening. Because at the first hint of difficulty, at the first hint of hassle, at the first hint of the unexpected, people complain. And that's often when it occurs. It's whenever circumstances are annoying. It's whenever someone is annoying. Whenever things don't go as you'd planned. Whenever people disappoint you. Whenever people don't deliver. Whenever life takes a turn for the worse. Those are the moments, those are the times whenever our default position kicks in and we complain and we moan. Now, before we, we read from verse 22, it's on, it's on page 73 of those Red Pew Bibles, but before we read from verse 22 of chapter 15, let me just remind us, and Richard's touched on this, where, where we left these people last week, the, the children of Israel have been miraculously released, dramatically saved from slavery in Egypt, plus they've been subsequently saved from being recaptured or killed and from drowning. And as they stand, and as they stood rather, on the, on the other side of the Red Sea, having watched their enemies being wiped out, last week we left this group of people, 600,000 plus of them, singing their hearts out. They praised God as they'd never praised them before. And the lyrics to the song that they sang, that Moses led them in singing, those lyrics were impressive. And, and I kind of highlighted a number of them. Here's just some of them. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who's like you, you're majestic in holiness, you're awesome in glory, you work wonders. These people are in a good place. They're on a kind of spiritual high. But life rarely stays, rarely gets parked there. Life is, to kind of quote the, you know, I've quoted him before, the popular theologian Ronan Keating. Life is a roller coaster. There, there are highs and there are lows, there are ups and downs and there are twists and there are turns. And in the space of 72 hours, that's all. In the space of 72 hours, these people go from worship to whinging. 
They go from gratitude to grumbling. They grow from celebration to complaint. Three days after the greatest praise party to date, their attitude shifted. The music has faded. The dancing has stopped. And at the first sign of trouble, the first sign of hardship, they voice off. And they effectively question, they undermine everything they've just sang three days ago, everything they believed, everything they knew. And as we engage with their story and with their situation, as we read about it here in Exodus 15, 16, 17, it's vital to note that one of the reasons we can read what happened is to learn from what happened. And this is so important. One of the reasons that we can read what happened is to learn from what happened. Because in a sense, the Israelites were making history for our benefit. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil that they did. So, for example, Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, and do not grumble as some of them did. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written down so that they would be a warning for us. And so one of the reasons we have this story in front of us is to ensure we don't repeat these mistakes, and particularly the mistake of complaining. And so let's, let's read together just a section of this. Uh, we'll not read all three chapters, but let's stand uh, for the public reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read from verse 22 of, verse 15, of chapter 15 down to the end of that chapter. It says this, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur for three days. They traveled in the desert without finding water, and when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter, and that's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And then the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. And he said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and you do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and you keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Grab a seat. Three, three days of wandering in a desert without finding water. That, that, that is no joke. I realize that. We all know that. And then whenever you do find some water and it, and it turns out to be undrinkable, well, well, that's also hard to take. And therefore, asking the question, Moses, what are we to drink? At one level, that's a fair enough question to ask, isn't it? It's, it's understandable for them to ask that question, but what isn't fair? And what isn't helpful and what isn't right is the attitude behind the question, because it says, so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, Moses, what are we going to drink? You see, it's the attitude that reveals a problem. Yes, the water is bitter, the place is now called bitter, but ironically, so is their attitude. Their attitude is bitter, and, and therefore it spills out. Because a negative attitude always does erupt and spill out, and it spills out in a variety of ways, and one of the ways it spills out a negative and bad attitude is you complain, and you voice off, and you moan. Because attitude always does matter. It, it, but how did God respond to their bad attitude? 
How would you have responded? And you would have understood if God had reminded them what they just sung three days ago. Let me read you some more of the lyrics that they just sung 72 hours previously. In your own failing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, God, you will guide your people. Had they, had they forgotten that already? Or you would have understood if God had reminded them what he had done for them at the Red Sea less than a week ago. Or even you would have understood if God had reminded them of their really bitter experience in Egypt. But no, that's not how God reacts. How does God respond to his people moaning and complaining and grumbling against Moses? He provides for them. He provides them. He not only makes this water drinkable as Moses throws a piece of wood into it, but, but he leads them then to a place of 12 springs and 70 palm trees where they can drink and rest to their hearts are content. Incredible. The grace, the generosity, the provision of God. But then you turn over into chapter 16, and a short time later you discover they're at it again. You only get to verse 2. Now we're not quite sure how long has elapsed, maybe a month, but probably not even a month. But you only get into verse 2 of chapter 16 and you read this. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But this time the complaint's even more stinging. Because now they're actually saying, do you know something, Moses? We were better off in Egypt. See the exodus? See the coming out? See the being released? See the coming through? It's actually made life worse. So in Egypt, we, we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted, but now here we are in this desert and we're starving to death. They don't mention slavery. They don't mention harsh slave drivers. There's no mention of them crying out to God saying, God, please come and help us. Now it seems as they think back, they're saying, you know, Egypt was a great place to live. Egypt was great. And it's interesting how a tendency to complain about the present is often fueled by a hark back to yesteryear. These people recall the past, and as they compare then with now, they, they start complaining. Through a hazy glow of memory, that they become nostalgic, and they hanker back to the good old days, and they struggle to live in the present with gratitude. And it happens. It happens, and as someone has said, and I've quoted this before, we tend to see the past through rose-tinted glasses and the present through cracked lenses. And it happened in this chapter, and it still happens today, and again, we think, well, well how, is gonna, how is God going to respond this time? This time, the complaint has kind of gone up a level. This is a stinging, stinging complaint, saying, God, why didn't you just leave us where we were? But how, again, how God responds is incredible. He, he provides. He rains down bread every single morning to address their hunger. And so you read on and you come into the next chapter and into 17 and you encounter a third successive story of complaint. And clearly, no lessons are being learned. And this time again, it's the issue. It's not of food, it's of water supply. And immediately the people, it says, quarrel with Moses and they grumble against him. And this time it says Moses has passed himself. Moses is at his wit's end. He's had it with these people. He wonders what to do them. But again, God provides. This time via water gushing from a rock. 
And I know there are, there are lots of different aspects to those three stories, but, but the recurring narrative, if you like, the, the, the constant and the unifying theme is this one of complaint, the people's alarming tendency that whenever things get hard, whenever things don't go as they expected them to go, their default position is to complain. And in each of those stories, we, we encounter this, this cycle, and it's a consistent cycle, and it's a, it's a cycle that Charles Swindle, in his brilliant book about, about Moses, identifies. And he suggests that the Israelites are caught in this cycle right through these chapters. And as I share this, as I did six years ago, whenever we actually went through the, the, Man, on the Man on the Edge series, as I, as I share this cycle, I want you to think, can you relate, does this resonate? And so the first point on this cycle is, is this abundance, because in chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, the people are, they're rejoicing in God's abundant provision for them. And they're singing about it, and they're celebrating it, and they're thanking him for that, and they're looking up, and they're lost in wonder, love, and praise, and they're saying, God, you, you're an abundant God, and you've given us so much. But the second stage of the cycle is expectation, but because having experienced God's abundance, it seems that these people then expected it was gonna be like this all the time. God was gonna constantly keep them satisfied and comfortable and safe. But as we all know, life's not like that. That may be what we expect, that may be what we want, but that's never the way it turns out. Nor is it good if it's like that all the time. And then after that stage comes the third stage of disappointment. We expected it, but God is so good. We expected him to continue to be so good and to provide for us at our every need. But now we're disappointed because in chapter 15, water is scarce. And even when we do find water, it's bitter. And in chapter 16, we're now starving. And in chapter 17, again, we've got no water. And so they're disappointed. And so from looking up in praise or even looking forward in expectation, they're now kind of looking down at their circumstances and they're just disappointed. And then they move to the fourth stage and that's the stage of complaint where, the, where negativity takes over and the, the attitude shifts. And all the songs of praise and all the expressions of trust that they had articulated, they're now forgotten. And then comes this fifth stage the stage of grace, where God once again provides, even though they don't deserve it, God graciously meets their need as bitter water becomes sweet, as manna appears every single day for them, and as this water becomes or comes on tap from a rock. So abundance, expectation, disappointment, complaint, provision, and then they rejoice in the sense in God's abundance, but they expect it's going to stay like this. And then they're disappointed when it doesn't. And then they complain. And then God provides. And then they just keep going round and round in this. And the danger is that if we get caught at this, if, if we don't learn from their mistakes, then a key danger will be a hardening of our hearts. And the reason I, I say that is because of something we read, which is a kind of commentary on this in the Psalms. Because in Psalm 95, which is in part God's reflections on some of the incidents that took place in the desert and in the wilderness, including the one in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, this is what we read. Do not harden your hearts, says God. 
as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa, that was in chapter 17, in the wilderness, where your ancestors, they tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. And you see, complaining and grumbling. Do you know what it actually does? And, and this is where we get to the heart of the matter of the kind of core. Complaining and grumbling, what it does is it calls God's goodness into question. That, that's what it, it, it puts God on trial. It actually puts God to the test. It, it, it tests his goodness. Is God good? I, I know we sang earlier that God in his strength is going to lead us, but do we actually believe that? Let's put God to the test. Reveals a serious lack of trust. And in Exodus 16, as, as Moses tells the Israelites about God's provision of manna and meat, he, he says this, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and this bread, this manna in the morning, for he has heard your complaints against him. And then Moses asks, well, what have we done? Yes, he says, your complaints, they're against the Lord, they're not against us. And so the point here is that although their, their complaining was, it seemed, always directed at Moses and often Aaron as well, the point is here, God takes it personally. God takes it personally. And the reality is that whenever we complain unjustly about our situation and about our circumstances and about our expectations, we're really taking a side swipe at God. It reveals a lack of gratitude. It, it, it discloses that we're not sure we can trust God. We're not sure that God will lead us. We're not sure that God will watch over us. We're not sure that God is for us. In verse 7 of chapter 17, after the third story of complaint, we read this, and he, Moses, called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And, and when you boil it down, that, that's the core again. Because whenever we grumble and whenever we complain and whenever we moan, we're really asking, is God good or is he not good? Is God in control or has God lost control? Does God love us? Back to the song, does God love us or does he not love us? Has he rescued us or not? Will he guide us from this day forward or won't he? And these people couldn't bring, it seems, they couldn't bring themselves to trust God for any length of time. And therefore, the chronic complaining kept going on as they continued around this cycle. And their hearts, it would seem, grew harder and harder. And the bigger consequences you read off are then huge. So listen to Numbers 14 now. And it's commentary on this tendency. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me not one of you, not one of you will enter into the land. See, complaining and grumbling is that serious. It's that serious. This is a toxic, faith-damaging issue. 
And so Paul's advice to us is clear. Paul says, listen, as he reflects back on their story, as he writes to the church in Corinth, as he writes to us, he says, do not grumble as some of them did. And the question is, and the question we must face up to is, Will we learn from their mistakes? Will I learn from their mistakes? In Philippians 2, Paul, when he's writing to another church, he takes this even further, and he says to Christians in that place and to all Christians, he says, do everything without complaining. For, that, for that's the will of God. Do everything without complaining, without arguing as well, he says. And that's the challenge. And in our culture, that challenge is in fact huge. To do everything we do without complaining. Is that not a massive challenge? But as I kind of wrap this up, please remember that the state of your heart is at stake. The state of your heart is at stake because every time, every time we voice off, every time we moan, every time we complain, it seems our hearts just get that little bit harder. Just get that little bit harder. And so what is the alternative then? Well, the alternative is to trust. To trust that, God, you are with us. You're still with us. Those, those, the realism of those songs that we sang at the start, that God is still with us on the bright days and on the dark days. That God is still with us when the sun's shining and when the rain's pouring down. That God is with us in the abundant places and God is with us in the desert places. God has never and never does abandon us. God is still in control. God hasn't lost control of your life and mine, your situation or my situation. God is still leading us. God is still guiding us. We've got to trust, God, are you still up close and personal? Do I still believe you're up close and personal? Or have you removed yourself from me? Have you removed yourself from us? Are you no longer interested? And the alternative is also to trust that you know something, God may be using the testing of us. The people here were testing God. But one of the lessons we learn from this is, and one of the lessons we know from Scripture is that God often tests us in the desert and in the wilderness. Why? To shape and to humble us and to transform our hearts and to soften our hearts. Because again, in Numbers, one of the commentaries on the whole time in the wilderness in the 40 years, we kind of read where God says, do you know I did a lot of that? I tested you at times. Why? Because I wanted to see what was in your heart. And so we need to say, okay, God, I trust you through this dark spell, through this difficult day. When I'm thirsty, when I'm hungry, when I'm not sure you're even there, God, I'm going to trust you that during this time of testing, you're using it for your purposes that you want to reveal what's in my heart, that you want my heart to remain soft and teachable, that you don't want it to go hard. And alongside trust then, the other alternative to complaining and moaning and voicing off is gratitude. It is, isn't it? We've been instructed, we've got to give thanks, not for all circumstances we made this point, but we've got to give thanks in all circumstances. Can, can we honestly do that? Can I honestly do that? Can I come before God and say, God, I... I am grateful in this circumstance. I don't like it, I'm not grateful for it, but I'm grateful in this circumstance. And again, why should we be grateful in all circumstances? Because as God's word says, that is the will of God. Billy Graham once said that 
grumbling and gratitude are for the child of God in conflict. Be grateful and you won't grumble. Grumble and you won't be grateful. And so having read Exodus or some of Exodus 15, 16, 17, the thing is, are, are we going to learn from history or are we going to repeat it? So is it roses or thorns? What do you see? And what about trying this? Came across this. What about trying this for a day? Go 24 hours without complaining. Not even once. And then watch how your life starts changing. Or why not go 24 hours without complaining and see how our hearts start changing.